Let's pray. God, in these next few minutes, pray that you will be enjoyed. Pray uh, as we gather here at Crosspoint, I want to pray for a sister church in this community. I want to pray for First Baptist Church in Greenville. I want to pray for Terry uh, Blankenship and just uh, thank you for uh, your ministry through him, Lord. I pray for Terry, for his worship. I want to pray that Terry is um, amazed by you. I pray that you will guard his awe, that he will um, be awed and wowed by you to the point where sermons are born, um, counseling times are born, his role as a husband is fueled, his role as a father is fueled by worship ultimately. Lord, we pray for his marriage that it will be a just a wonderful picture of Christ in the church that others will know what the gospel looks like because they see how Terry interacts with his wife. Lord, we pray for their um, community there, the people of God at FBC Greenville. Lord, we pray that it's a people that are like-minded, a people that have a sweet peace with each other because of the finished work of the cross. Lord, I pray that it's a people that keep, that are good about keeping a short account with each other, a people reconciled, to you and to each other. Lord, I pray that they are a sweet aroma of worship, smelling like Christ to you, that others will smell that aroma of worship and they'll be drawn to it and that um, the facilities won't be able to support the growth that you bring to that body. Lord, in whatever way that we can serve alongside this church, we pray that you'll give us eyes for that, whether it's just uh, serving with a, a brother or sister in a work setting and enjoying the Lord together in that setting, or whether it's something official, and just pray that, um, or something more um, corporate, just pray that we'll be faithful to do what we need to do there. We, we love you in FBC Greenville. We love you in Cross Point, and uh, we look forward to what you have in store. Uh, the order this morning for this body, I pray for a really high view of the Word. I pray that the Word will be the thing that shapes our view and understanding of all things in this morning, specifically baptism. I pray that you'll give us an Ebenezer and a piton and an instrument that we probably don't have right now. By the end of this message, that we'll have something to grab hold of, that's something that's solid. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We are in a series of messages on the church. How this began is a couple months ago, Brad Cardwell was preaching a sermon on the difference between missions and ministry, that there is a difference. Uh, He differentiated between the two, indicating that ministry was an outflow of the church, but that missions was planting the church. So going to a foreign land is not necessarily a mission journey. It can be a ministry journey. And that's cool. It's not saying that it's some sort of lesser thing. It's just saying let's not call it a mission journey if it's a ministry journey. And let's be intentional about engaging missions as well as ministry. And missions being looking for where the church is weak or absent and taking the church there and planting the church there. A sustainable, multiplying body of believers would be our burden in mission work. So that makes a lot of sense as we're hearing that. Dots are connected. But we also realize that it brought up some questions. Do we even really know what the church is? Do we know what we're supposed to be looking for? Do we know, are we able to recognize what may be absent 
in a location? And are we able to bring what needs to be there according to what our Bibles say the church is? It seems like a no-brainer question. Somebody says, what's the church? And you say, what's that building right down the street? You got it wrong already. Somebody says, what's the church? It's, well, we have 98 of them here in, here in Greenville serving 25,000 people. We have 98 church buildings. That can seem harsh to say something like that, but it's something that we need to consider. We also need to consider, are we a church? Are we just riding the coattails of those who've gone before us, just reproducing what they've done and not letting the Bible tell us what the church is? We should be driven by this, and our ethic and our understanding of who and what we are should be derived from this. I'm thankful for those who've gone before us, but you know that little exercise where you tell one Boy Scout one thing, and he passes it on to the next one and to the next one, you go all the way around the circle. By the time it gets back to the very beginning, he announces what the original statement was, and it's like nothing that it was in the beginning. We can do that with church. So it's profitable for us as a people to go back and say, what is the church? Show us what the church is. So what we've been doing these last few weeks is really designing, a, coming up with a definition from the Bible. So far we have this definition, and this is from, I don't know, seven or eight sermons. What even is the church? The church is an accountable people who are led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving, and what we considered last week and this week, a baptizing people. We only have one more thing left, and that will be a supping people, and that's where we'll go next week. But today we'll finish up the baptizing people. Last week we considered two things. <clears throat> Last week we spent most of our time in the Old Testament. We realized and confessed and acknowledged really that we're potentially a bunch of parachuters, that we just parachute into the New Testament. We see the Jordan, and we watch a few baptisms, and we think we got it figured out, not realizing that a parachuter doesn't know what happened before he got there. Parachuter needs to talk to somebody who's been on the ground. <laughs> so what we did last week is we talked to some Jews, Jews, nation of Israel, Moses, in fact, show us what happened before we parachuted into the Jordan so we can understand what we're seeing at the Jordan. So we can understand what happened to Daniel last week. So we can understand what's happened to us at our baptisms. That's you. <laughs> Okay, so that's where we're going to go this morning. First of all, we're going to go back and pick up that God baptizes his people. I want to show you what happens to Christ in regards to that. We learned last week that God baptizes people as we looked at Noah, as Noah and his family who go through a watery ordeal and come out the other side on dry, crunching here, crunch, crunch, ground, preserved, protected, taken care of by their God. We also consider the nation of Israel across the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea on dry, crunching ground and come up, the, uh, come up on the other side safe and preserved by their God. And those aren't a stretch to look at those in terms of baptism because our New Testament writers do as well. Peter referred back to Noah and said this refers to baptism. And Paul referred back to baptism in the count of the Red Sea parting. So we realize that God baptizes his people. We also consider last week that God washes his people. When the nation of Israel showed up at Sinai where God's going to come down and show up, God tells Moses, go get everybody cleaned up because I'm going to be here on the third day. So the nation of Israel has to go bathe. He also has Aaron and Aaron's sons, the priests, wash at their ordination. 
And then, then they have to wash every time they go serve. They have to wash up with water. In fact, there's a water basin at the tabernacle and temple itself for cleansing before you ever even come into the presence of the Lord. And then we considered the sacrifices, especially the burnt offerings that are washed themselves. That God washes his people, he washes his priests, and he washes his sacrifice. Now, in light of that, let's look at Matthew chapter 3. As you're turning there too, if, if you have pen and paper, if you're one of those to take notes, let me give you a map of where we're going this morning. I want to prepare you for a handful. If you're lazy, you're not going to get anything this morning. But if you're ready to do the work of good listening, the work of active listening. And man, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking, man, I know our sermons are long compared to the norm. But then I thought, you know, people go to a movie for an hour and a half like this. <laughs> Not bat an eye about stuff that doesn't even matter. Right? So surely we can engage something actively, engaging it. I'm challenging you in these next few minutes. Let me give you a map of where we're going. And we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 3 in a second. Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. If you like to jot these down and kind of have your, your doilies in there or something. Yeah. Acts chapter 2, Matthew chapter 28, Galatians chapter 3, 1 Peter 3. <laughs> uh, we're not done. Romans 6, 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 16, Acts 22, 1 Peter 3 which we've already gone to, we'll go back. Hebrews 10, 1 Corinthians 6, and Romans 6. It sounds like a lot, but I promise you, if you're actively listening, it's going to be sweet. Let's start with Matthew chapter 3, considering the River Jordan. We've started there last week. We're going to go back to the River Jordan, and now with a new set of eyes that we gained last week, a new lens, really. Looking at baptism through the Old Testament where we see God baptizing his people, God washing his people, his priests, and his sacrifice. Let's look at this. Matthew chapter 3 verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. There we are back again. To John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. Listen. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a sweet phrase. I'm about to show you why. Then John the bee consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now this phrase here. Where Jesus, you know, John's kind of saying, I can't, I'm not sure I can do this. You're supposed to do this to me. He says, no, this, what's about to unfold is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. I want you to look at the baptism of Christ now in light of where we went last week and realizing that it does, in fact, fulfill all righteousness. It's in keeping with the character of God because you will see the significance of Christ's baptism. First, he is washed as an ordained priest. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us he's the ultimate high priest once and for all time. So just like Aaron and his sons need to be washed, 
God the Son is washed in the river Jordan. But he's not just washed as an ordained priest, the once and for all final priest. He's also washed as the once and for all final sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us he is the final sacrifice. So now you can see when he shows up there at the river Jordan that it's in keeping with God's design. And he is in fact fulfilling all righteousness, exactly what we looked at last week. That as an ordained priest, he is washed the final priest, the alpha priest. As the alpha sacrifice, he's washed. Now look at Luke chapter 3. God washes his people. Let's look at Luke chapter 3. Now we're going to see God baptizes his people in light of Christ. Luke chapter 3 verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, excuse me, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That happened, right? Everybody that knows their Bible knows that that happened in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit shows up. Acts chapter, uh, early, uh, Acts chapter 2 specifically. Peter preaches the, the, the former chicken of Passover is now the, the bold preacher of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit shows up and there's flames of fire on top of them and they're speaking in these unknown tongues. The Holy Spirit does indeed show up. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and then he says, he will baptize you with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is pointing toward Pentecost, but the baptism by fire is pointing toward judgment. A very underpreached, underhandled reality for every single one of us. And a very underrepresented role for our Christ as the one that's holding the winnowing fork as the one who will bring the fire, as the one who will do the judging as he clears the threshing floor. And here's the beauty for God's people. Just like they pass through the river, uh, the Red Sea, just as they pass through the, 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 the river Jordan, just as they came out the, the, the ark on dry, crunching ground, the people of God will pass through this time of judgment, this time of judgment by fire, this God has deluged this earth with water already. He's promised he's not going to do that again. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter that there's another deluge coming, and that deluge will be fire. And just like God has preserved his people through the watery ordeal, in this case, he will preserve his people through the fiery ordeal. And his people will step out on the other side on dry, here, cool ground, delivered and preserved. It's just so fitting in light of the Red Sea passing. The very thing that God's people are preserved through becomes the instrument of judgment for the Egyptians. The very thing that Noah and his family are preserved through becomes the instrument of judgment for the entire world. And in light of that, that John here and Luke records it, puts baptism and judgment together. That's going to come full circle at the very end of this sermon. Engaging how our context views baptism. Let's look at the church now. What does this thing, this baptism thing have to do with the church? 
why is this part of the church series? Did we just need an extra Sunday, something to talk about? Or should it be part of this church series? For we have no seas to cross, right? We have no Egyptians behind us, hot on the chase. We have no priests to wash. We have no sacrifices to wash. So what does this mean for the church? Turn to Acts chapter 2. The passage I spoke of just a moment ago. Let's look at it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, let me just tell you ahead of time. This is the birthday of the church. Just right up front, I'm say, well, what did, how important is this in the life of the church? Let's acknowledge that this was the birthday of the church. When the Holy Spirit came, out, came down and began to dwell in the heart of man, in the heart of a people. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, sweet sound of community. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now look over at verse 37. Peter goes on to preach that first sermon on the first on the birthday of the church and then it says in verse 36 he says let all the house of israel therefore know that certain certain that god has made him both lord and christ this jesus whom you crucified now when they these people heard this they were cut to the heart they said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and peter said to them listen he said repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day 3,000 souls. On the birthday, you ask the question, why is this part of the church series? Why is this important? On the birthday of the church, the Holy Spirit shows up and the first 3,000 charter members of the church are baptized. Baptism matters so much in the life of the church. Turn to Matthew chapter 28. This will be a familiar passage to many of you. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18. Let me tell you as you're turning that I'm thankful that I'm hearing pages turn. I don't have you turn to every passage that I engage, but I have you turn to the ones that are important. I'm an audible listener, an audible learner, but it's helpful to see as well. To see that what I'm talking to you about this morning is not something some I'm making up. It's not some funny emails. It's not somebody's opinion. This is actually something that's been recorded over the ages by God-inspired men, written by the very finger of God for God's people. So I want you to see it, and I appreciate that y'all turn there, that you're not lazy listeners. Matthew chapter 20, excuse me, 28, verse 18. 
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now he's about to say a couple more things, but let me tell you right now. Go therefore sounds like it's command. It's actually, in the original language, it's having gone already. Having gone, and he, pre- he presents the imperative of this great commission. Make disciples. That's the command. Make disciples, apostles. Having gone to all the nations, make disciples. Like, okay, that sounds good. What does that look like? Well, here's what it looks like, this next phrase. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Want to know what the church ought to be about? The church ought to be about that right there. Making disciples. Hey, man, what kind of cool programs you got? Well... You know, we're kind of lean. Well, what do you do? Well, we teach and preach and we make disciples and we teach people to obey and we baptize. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's what he said to do. So that's what we do. We baptize and we teach people to obey and teach people to observe what God has said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, notice how many passages we're going to this morning, the full counsel. Teaching them to observe the full counsel. Baptism is an essential event in the life of the church. It is, according to this passage, the entry right into the people of God. You hear that? It is the entry right into the people of God. Make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey. It is the entry right into the people of God. Now, sit back and listen for a minute. Catch your breath. Put your Bible down and listen. I don't want you to look to these passages. I want you to listen. Okay, I'm going to give you a little little break with your Bibles. But I'm going to continue on in the Bible. What goes with baptism? This is just kind of a little, it's not an intermission. It's just kind of a little side picture I want you guys to get as you as we raise the bar on what baptism is. Listen to these series of passages, all from the book of Acts, which is really kind of like the baptism book. Uh, they're baptism in other places, but especially in book of Acts. Watch these things that go with baptism. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. For the, so those who received the word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Repentance goes with baptism. Receiving the word goes with baptism. Should we baptize somebody that somebody's not even listening? Somebody that has no use for God and his word? Somebody that just, you can't even beg them to engage a sermon or a Bible study. Right, let's get you baptized. Uh, That doesn't look right because receiving the word goes with baptism. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Belief goes with baptism. Acts chapter 18, verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. This is the account of Paul. It says, now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. 
So right here we have the washing away of sins and the calling on of his name going with baptism. It's so much more than a short dip in a cool pool. It's so much more than just an occasion to get wet and have kind of some new sentimental memories. It's so much more than that. It goes with repentance. It goes with receiving his word. It goes with belief. It goes with belief. It goes with belief. Example after example after example. In that last case, it goes with the washing away of your sins and the calling on his name. Baptism is a big, big, big deal. Now let's look at some specific passages. Grab your Bible again. What is baptism? Galatians chapter 3. Just a two-second look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one. I just want you to see that baptism is putting on Christ. He doesn't say as many of you as were, you know, almost as many of you as were baptized are the number that have actually put on Christ. Or he doesn't say, you know, there's a lot more of you that have put on Christ than were baptized. Or there's a lot more of you that were baptized and put on Christ. They go together. This is baptism putting on Christ. It actually is donning. I like to use old-timey words for new things that we need to engage. And don is a word that we used to use for gas masks. Don your your nuclear NBC gear. Don your gas mask. It's always a weird word, but this is a weird word for us. We need to engage a weird word to go, okay, I'm going to don Christ. I want to put him on, and that's what we do in the right of baptism. We put on Christ. Now look at 1 Peter 3. <clears throat> this is a passage we engaged last week. We're going to engage in here again just for a moment. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21. <clears throat> Baptism, which corresponds to this. If you're familiar with the passage, you remember this is Noah and the ark and the flood. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First of all, just considering Noah and his family, baptism is deliverance through a watery ordeal. Okay? At least it's that. But from this passage, we see that it's more. It's deliverance for the people of God. As in Noah's case, as in Israel's case. I was thinking about a couple of other examples where the, the, the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is snoozing. And the storm comes up, and it's a watery ordeal. And they're like, man, we're going to drown. We can't handle this. And Jesus says, peace be still, and delivers his people to dry, crunching ground on the other side. Man, baptism is at least that. He says here, though, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. When I was a kid, 
growing up in central Louisiana, we live in a swamp, Bobeth Swamp. It's not like we have to canoe to our house or anything. It's not that swampy, but it's close. So you can get on a three-wheeler or a four-wheeler and just go right into the swamp in a matter of seconds. And we'd play outside, and we would get so dirty that you'd have beads. You know what I'm talking about? I was an overweight kid, so I had rolls. So the rolls <laughs> made for these beads. And mom would say, okay, Ben, it's time to go take a bath. So I'd take a bath, and I'd come out, and the beads are still there. And she'd say, son, did you take a bath? Well, yes. Did you use soap? No. <laughs> no, I didn't. He says, water, this baptism thing is not the removal of dirt from the body. Body, water isn't a good agent for the removal of dirt, is it? You need some soap. You need some sort of detergent. So I used the example last week. A gecko jumps on your back. I need to go wash myself. A roach jumps in a bowl. I need to go wash the bowl with water. Have you really cleansed it? We know enough, we know enough about germs and bacteria to know that that didn't really cleanse it. The point is that God has reckoned it cleansed. God ordained water to be the detergent or the cleansing agent, at least for the moment, to cleanse that person or that bowl or that back or that baptizee. It's what God has ordained to go with this next major thing in this passage, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, somebody says, oh, I was baptized last week. And you go, okay, good. Biblically informed. I know that last week that you made an appeal to God for a good conscience. I know that last week you made an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You didn't take a short dip in a cool pool. It was more than that. Now look at Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We're asking and answering the question, okay, what is baptism? So far we have that it's putting on of Christ. Secondly, we have that it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So three things we can add to this list that baptism is. Baptism is baptism into the death of Christ. You're not just putting on Christ. You're not just making an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. You are also being baptized into his death. And he also says right here in verse 4, he says, we're buried with him by baptism into death. You're also buried with him. You're buried into his death, or you're baptized into his death. You're baptized into his actual burial. And then the beauty is, you're also baptized into his resurrection. So that Sunday morning where he stepped out into a dewy, morning, or if we want to use the same imagery from last week, a crunchy morning, crunch, crunch, 
that we stepped out with him. That's what Ephesians 2 says. We were raised together with Christ. Man, through baptism? And then he says, in order that, or so that we too, like Christ, can step out into the dry Sunday morning ground to walk in crunchy newness of life. Do you hear it? From baptism. From that thing that we did to Daniel last week, that thing that likely happened to you at some point has hopefully happened, hopefully happened to you. The last passage I want to look at before I make a specific appeal is 1 Corinthians 12. Let's look there. You're about to understand why we're working, why I'm working so hard at explaining what baptism is. It's because I'm about to make a specific appeal that's critical. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now watch 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jew and, or Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. We can add to the list of things that baptism is, is it's baptism into the body of Christ. It's baptism into the people of God. It's baptism into the local body of believers. I realize as I'm saying this that some of you are thinking about this idea of the church and this body of Christ, and you have a really high view of this body of Christ, and you see baptism as, yes, I'm baptized into this universal church without acknowledging that that shows up in baptism into a, yes, little old normal, local body of believers with problems, with clay feet, a bunch of people that stumble on things and say things that are awkward and weird, a bunch of regular old folks. Man, think the letter that this is written to. Paul is appealing to the Corinthians, the most clay of us. Man, they're, they got all kind of stuff going on in their church. And he's saying in baptism, you were baptized into this body, into a local body of believers. Have a really high view for what baptism is and connect it to a local body of believers. Uh, Daniel was baptized into you last week. Do you realize that? It's not just a sentimental memory. Something happened. And in God's eyes, he was baptized into the body of Christ. Baptized into the people of God. Baptism is so much more than a personal profession of faith. And I want to confess my own history of parachuting. Because there's many a time from that water that I've said, this is a public profession of faith, and what's about to happen here is merely symbolic. I was in parachuting. Man, it is more than a profession of faith. It is baptism into a people. It's at least a profession of faith, but something is happening that's bigger than the individual. Daniel was baptized into the people of God. What I hope you're seeing from these last few verses is that baptism is big. It's more than a short dip in a cool pool. Baptism is big and here's where I want to go in these next few minutes. I fear that we may have undershot the meaning of baptism 
and the gravity and impact of baptism for fear of making it a works salvation. For fear of attaching some sort of thing that you can do to be saved. And you know what? We better be afraid of that. But for fear of that, we've swung to the other direction to only call this symbolic. To where it has no real oomph. There's an important question that comes up when people talk about baptism. And here's the question. It goes like this. When the writer is talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit, or when is the writer talking about baptism with the Holy Spirit, and when is he talking about baptism with water? As you're reading in the New Testament, guys that are into this and studying this, they're asking that question. Is he talking about water baptism here or spirit baptism? And I will argue that it will matter not how we answer that question, but if we even ask the question at all, that's what's going to matter most in these next few minutes. Because see, water baptism, this thing that happened to Daniel last week, is so intertwined with conversion and with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that New Testament believers didn't separate them. The thing that we spend so much time and effort trying to differentiate, they didn't separate them. Yet we spend all this effort and all this energy. They thought of conversion or what we might call spiritual baptism and water baptism like a wedding and consummation. They go together. Why would anybody think otherwise would have occurred to them? What? What? Why would you even ask if they go or if they're separate. The idea of trusting Christ as Savior and Lord and months or years later being baptized would be like getting married and months or years later consummating the marriage. We could sit around and muse, are they really married? Or we could really ask the most important question and turn to that husband and wife and say, what is wrong with you? That's the bigger question. Kids, this would be like you getting an amazing Lego set. Someone just giving you this amazing Lego set that has like 8 million pieces. And then you're not even opening it. And not tearing the package open and putting the thing together. It just sits there on a shelf. It'd be like someone turning the age that they need to be to drive. And someone giving them a beautiful classic car, giving it to them. A beautiful classic car, convertible. And them never cranking the keys and getting out of that driveway and taking it out on old mill and letting the hair, the, the wind blow through their hair. The question is not, is that your car? The question is, what's wrong with you? Why would you not? They go together. Separating water baptism and conversion was just unthinkable. They went together in our New Testament context. Our desire to separate them and our fear about putting too much on this reflects, I would argue, Gnostic tendencies. The Gnostics, let me tell you who they were. The Gnostics was a heresy in the early church. The Gnostics believed, they believed that, that humans are divine souls trapped in a material world created by an imperfect God. They called this God the, the, the Demiurge. And the problem is they separated this, this inner soul from everything material, including their own flesh. 
They separated the spiritual from the physical. And it actually became grotesque to the point where they could do anything they wanted with their body. Because they said, it doesn't impact my soul. They could participate in any wickedness they wanted. That doesn't impact my soul. That's where that, this line of reasoning goes when we separate the physical from the spiritual. What we need to realize is God made body and soul together. They go together. Consider Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Don't turn, listen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Most people would agree that's not the beating heart. That's like this little inner rascal. Right? Folly's bound up in the heart of the rascal or the rasket. Folly's bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Oh, wait a second. We're talking about something spiritual and inner. Is somehow connected to something outer? It seems what he's saying is that the invisible spiritual heart is connected to the very visible red behind. In this case, there is a connection between the spiritual and the physical. They go together. Consider Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. You hear that? A real mouth that eats food. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, you will be saved. For with the mouth one confesses, and with the heart one believes. The physical and spiritual go together. We need to embrace the physical event taking with the spiritual as the pregnant and momentous moment that it should be. The material and the spiritual go together. A man who's overwhelmed with the greatness of God will sing and dance with his body because the physical and spiritual are tied together. A man who says he has faith yet has no evidence here show physical expression James says he's got no faith at all spiritual and physical go together a baptism in the flesh in a pool with an ugly painting of the Jordan in our case (laughs) the physical should be united to the baptism of the soul because we're not Gnostics we don't separate the two Here's an example. Turn to Acts 16. I want to show you two, three examples. Acts 16. If you've been listening, I bet I have your attention right now. Especially a bunch of Baptists. Ironically, it's Baptists that I'm afraid have undershot the meaning of baptism. Now, that's irony. A couple weeks ago, it wasn't irony. I couldn't figure out what it was. That's irony. Watch this, Acts chapter 16. Watch what unfolds here in this story. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. They're in jail, singing, man. 
And suddenly there's a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He's got it right here. Oh man, I'm done. I'm toast. Supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Hey, don't harm yourself. We're still here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he, watch, was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He's sitting there rejoicing. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to his entire household. They believed and were baptized at once. And he and his household rejoiced at their newfound belief. While he sat there, you've seen it. With wet hair. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen somebody after they got, Daniel sat here with wet hair last week. You've seen somebody after baptism, and you kind of, I remember as a kid looking over going, he got baptized. <laughs> Look at that water in his hair. I remember mine. This guy, this guy's rejoicing, man, while he sits there with water, H2O, in his hair. Acts chapter 22. You could say, that's just consequence. That's just an example. It, maybe that's not what you're making it to be. Let's look at Acts chapter 22. Y'all hanging? Let me tell you why it's important that you hang with this. Because this is about to just blow wide open of why this matters. Why we're going to all this effort this morning. So hang just a little bit longer. And then you're just going to see it. It's going to sound like that too. It's going to blow right open. Acts chapter 22 verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear his voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait, Paul, or Saul, about to be Paul? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Obviously, he's talking about water baptism right there. He's talking about, let's get some water and either pour it over him or dunk it in it, dunk him in it. Why do we wait? Let's get this done. And let's wash away your sins calling on his name. See, it's more than a short dip in a cool pool. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Here we see it's calling on his name. It goes with repentance. It goes with receiving the word. It goes with belief. Man. So much more than a short dip in a cool pool. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 3.
1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this. You remember what this points to? Noah and his family. Now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have to trust that baptism rightly administered and rightly engaged is associated with a call on his name. That it's associated with an appeal for a good conscience. It's not just a short dip in a cool pool. Rightly understood, rightly engaged, it's an amazing moment. And we need to trust that God shows up. When someone does that, I'm appealing to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, cleanse me of my sins. I'm calling on you to give me a clean conscience because of what he's done, not because of what I've done or, what because, or because of what anybody else could do. That God shows up in that moment. Can we give God credit for showing up and washing away sins? This is not just a picture. It's not just a sign. It's not just a symbol. It's not just a shadow. It is substance. Can we see a big God showing up in a pregnant moment without going hocus pocus on the water? Oh, let me go gather up some of the water. I have some plants that aren't doing well. I have a friend that's sick. Let me go get some of this water and I'll pour it on them. Can we give this the credit that the New Testament writers do without getting all weird about this water? Can we recognize that it's God that's doing something? I'll give you an example. Ordination. Brad and Steve, I ordained you four years ago, five maybe by this point. Something like that. Brad thinks it's five. Ordination. That, that moment when we had them come up here and kneel. I was the only elder at that point. Actually, there were a few when Brad, we were, Steve was already ordained, Ron Perone, Jeff Collins. When Brad walked up here or when Steve walked up here, he walked up here a believer a father, a husband, a man of God. But did he walk up here an elder? No. Did he walk up here ordained? No. Was there something special about these hands? No. All I did was lay hands on them and ask God to show up and reckon this man an elder ordained by you, God. And guess what? When Steve went and sat down, when, when, when Brad went and sat down, they sat down an elder. Not because of anything that I did, because of what God reckoned. I'll give you another example. Many of you are married. You showed up to a little building a certain day, likely a Saturday. It was July the 8th for us. We showed up, two people. We walked into this day. I'm wearing a uniform. Christy's wearing a white, beautiful dress. We show up, two people. And a man pronounces, I pronounce you man and wife, but God shows up and says, these are now one. I'm reckoning these two now one. God did something in that moment. And we don't give the credit to the pronouncer. We don't give the credit to the hands. We don't give the credit to the water and get all weird. We just say God showed up because he promised to. God did something in that. 
because he said he would. I fear we as Baptists for fear of work salvation have made too little of baptism. That's irony. And we've reduced it to purely symbolic instead of seeing it as actually accomplishing something. That from baptism forward, God says, you are now a baptized child of mine, one of my people. It's more than a short dip in a cool pool. Something happens when someone confesses their dirt to the God they wronged and calls out for cleansing. There's power in that moment. Because God shows up. We have injured the weight of baptism with questions like, do we have to be baptized to go to heaven? With questions like, is someone saved if they're baptized? With questions like, if someone's hit by a car after they ask Christ to be their Savior and Lord before they're baptized, do they go to heaven? You know what? The New Testament writers never dealt with these questions. The real question is, should we even be asking those questions? Are they even appropriate questions? The New Testament writers never made the effort to differentiate between spirit and water baptism. They never differentiated between a baptized and unbaptized believer. They went together. It was a major moment where God showed up. Asking questions like this, like I just gave. Disassemble a work of art into canvas and paint. And it does it damage. It does it damage. It, it's, it's a childish question. It really is. It's not the question that we should be asking. Now, here's why I made all that effort to go to all that extent to show you what baptism is. If our view is in keeping with the New Testament, then we can say to our sons and our daughters and to our friends and to our family members, to our spouses who want to walk out on their marriages, to our parents, remember your baptism. I said that for the first time to my son yesterday. He was acting like a, like a six-year-old with our 10-year-old. And I said yesterday, I said, you know what, son? Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. The problem is in our context in Greenville, here's the way baptism is usually remembered. It goes like this. I'm knocking on a door. Scott and I visited nearly every house south of I-30 the first year we were here. Knocking on the door, passing out cards. Hey, we're Cross Point, new church. United Church Home, come check us out. And people would strike up conversations. Yeah, man, yeah, I'm part of this church, but I wish my son would get in that church. Oh, really? Yeah, my son. I, I mean, I know he's saved, but he's, you know, he really doesn't, have any interest in church or the things of God or the word or walking with the people or they wouldn't use that kind of language. He don't want to go to church. I said, really? Well, how do you know he's saved? I, well, he was baptized. I was there when he was baptized. That's the way we, in our context, a lot of times remember baptism. That's not the biblical way to remember baptism. And really what that is more than bringing a comfort to you should make you tremble. Because you go, oh, that thing that God was to deliver him through has now become the instrument of judgment. 
That very medium that God was going to deliver him through is now a medium of judgment on them. And they're now apostate. They've walked away from the people of God. Don't let that give you comfort. Let that make you tremble. And go to them and say, man, we need to talk. Rightly understood. What happens if we rightly engage baptism and see it as more than God's felt board? You know the kindergarten teachers use? You know, felt board, flannel graph. More than God's show and tell. Ooh, look what I did. If we see it as more than show and tell, and we actually see it as an actual event where God shows up and reckons something, and God does something, then better handled, it's a means of reminding a believer to persevere, to be faithful. I've never had that tool in my arsenal, in my accountability arsenal. And that sounds bad, arsenal like, pew. I mean, I never had that tool in my toolbox. Let's use that one. In my love toolbox where I love a brother and I want to appeal to him. I never, I, that tool's always been there. I just didn't know it. Because I undershot what baptism was. But now I'm seeing it as so much more. I have three more verses I want you to engage. We must engage these. If you've done the work in this sermon, here's where you get the cream. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We engaged this last week. Consider the finality of Christ's sacrifice, the finality of his offering, finality of his washing. That's why we don't have to wash over and over again. That's why our baptismal pools are still. See how still that is? You can't see it. There's water below that little lip there. And it's just like glass. Whoosh. Daniel's baptismal waters are still. Whoosh. He doesn't need to baptize again next week. We considered that last week. But watch this in verse 19. The writer of the book of Hebrews, what, watch what he does. He says, therefore, brothers, because of the finality of Christ's sacrifice, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, since we have a great priest, a wise, a washed priest, remember, over the house of God, since that's happened, he gives three let us's. Watch them. Here's the first. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts, watch, sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. What I want you to see is that right here in this picture, he says, let us draw near, because our bodies have been washed. Let us hold fast, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up. Not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. How do we do that? Remembering our baptism is one of those means. The writer of Hebrews says, remember our bodies are washed. 
He appeals to the readers in Hebrews. Remember your baptism. You were cleansed. Man, let's draw near. Remembering, oh yes. I remember what God reckoned on that special day, at that special moment. It wasn't the water, it wasn't the hands. It's what God said. Yes, man, I draw near. Two more. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Oh, you got to see this. 1 Corinthians 6. Paul's writing, remember, to the church at Corinth. Man, these guys are messed up. They really are. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you just say, whew, man, these guys were a mess. Paul's talking about lawsuits that they're having with each other. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Hear him appealing to them. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul appeals to these Corinthians, don't live like that because you were washed. Remember your baptism. And lastly, Romans chapter 6. When I read this earlier, I didn't read the first two verses because now I want you to see them in context. I want you to hear a loving pastor appealing to a church 2,000 years ago. Loving pastor named Paul saying, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A loving pastor appeals to a Roman church to walk in newness of life, remembering their baptism. Says, how can you continue in sin? You were washed. It's inappropriate. It doesn't reconcile with who you are. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Remember your baptism. It's not some lame, sentimental recollection. Oh, yeah, I remember what the pastor was wearing. 
I remember that ugly painting. It's not what this is. It's remembering what God did. Remembering who you are. Remembering whose you are. Remembering the people you were baptized into. That's what it means to remember your baptism. When Daniel was a young man and he thinks he's an island, we together can say to Daniel, remember your baptism, son. When he's lost his identity and his way, we can call him back to this Ebenezer, this stone of help, this stone of remembrance. It's like a piton in the rock face and he can grab it. It's solid. A time and a day and an hour when he confessed God as his God and Christ as his Savior and us as his people. And he called out to God for the cleansing of his sin. He appealed to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he's baptized into the people of God and God showed up. And he did what he said he would do. Evan was five or six. Luke was five or six when they were baptized. I went through probably what some of you as parents has gone through. Were you really fretting? Do they get it? Do they really understand what's taking place here? Are they receiving the word? Is there evidence of belief? Do they know what repentance means? We should be very careful searching for those things in our children. Those are the things that I fretted over and I will continue to fret over as I meet with young children or as I equip parents to meet with their own young children. We should be concerned about that. But we might ought to worry about how long they can fare without it. We might ought to wonder how long can Daniel go without this piton? How long do I want to leave him without this marker? My greatest concern should be how long do I want Daniel to go without what God did here? Let's remember our baptism rightly. Let's let the word develop what it is and what we're actually remembering. Let's not ask childish questions. Let's let God do what God does. Let me pray. God, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that it gives us understanding that we don't have on our own. Lord, I confess to you that I have had a purely symbolic view of baptism and now seeing what it goes with. I confess it as a moment where you show up. I confess it as an event that you recognize. I confess it as a time where you declare and decree one to be your own. One to be among your people. 
Lord, I pray that as a result of last week and this week, that we now have the tools to engage this rightly. And I'm talking about for future parents that are going to baptize their children, our future adults that are going to be baptized, that it will go with a call to you for the cleansing of your sin, that it will go with an appeal to you for a clean conscience in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that it will go with repentance, that it will go with belief, that it will go with the receiving of the word. Lord, we are thankful of what you promised to do in delivering us through the watery ordeal. We're thankful that you say, peace be still, or you have waters part, or you have floods dry up, or you have a deluge of fire leave us unscathed. We count you as the ultimate worker. We walk in your already finished work. Thank you for this Ebenezer. Thank you for this Piton. Thank you for what you have done and what you have yet to do in future baptisms. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to take the supper together. I encourage you not to take this supper unless you are believing on Christ. This is a, a family meal, a believer's meal. If your heart is soaring, your soul is soaring along with your flesh dancing as a result of seeing this God on display last week and this week, then take it, man. Take it. Take it in faith. But if it's not, if you think that you are saved by your own works, don't take this food because then it's just a snack. But for those who are trusting in the finished work of Christ, who are walking in that finished work as obedient believers, responding in repentance and faith, we take this meal as an act of worship. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we are so thankful for your finished work. So thankful that you, um, for your grace and mercy reaching so low to the likes of us. Lord, I'm thankful for uh, your word. I'm thankful too for a little group of people that are hungry and teachable, who work hard in listening and obeying. Lord, I pray that um, you'll, I just pray this morning that you were enjoyed. We're so thankful for the finished work of the cross. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.